Amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here of uh, Children and Families. Um, it's just a privilege to be on the team here. What a great morning, hey? Yeah, God is at work. God is at work in, uh, in people's lives, and it's just it's exciting. Um, before we get into our message this morning, um, I wanted to share with you another way God is working in our church. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, there's a lot of children in our church. Uh, there are many, many of them, um, which is such a blessing. Uh, it's also a huge responsibility. But uh, I'd say in the average church, uh, I've done my research, uh, usually about 20% of the adult population is kids. So there's your kids. Whatever the adults are, 20% of that. There's your kids. That's a healthy church. Uh, we're about 40%. So, yeah, amen, which is awesome. Uh, so, um, and then it's, you know, that falls to me and the children's team to, like, coordinate all that. So, um, uh, needless to say, we need your help. Uh, we, we, we are looking for some more people to get involved in discipleship, child discipleship. Uh, it's our heart here to not just babysit the kids when they're here on Sunday, but to really help disciple them, point them to Jesus, build relationship with them. Um, and we're really, really looking and wanting to encourage those of you who have uh, extra time on your hands. Maybe you're in a season where you're not, you don't have young children in the home. Uh, maybe you're a teenager, young adult, baby boomer, and you could actually like serve at one of our services and then attend the other service, something like that. We have one girl doing that right now, Jackie, bless her heart, and she, uh, she attends, she does Kids Church every week, um, and she also goes to church at the other service. So uh, we're looking for people like that, people who can commit um, to really just take our kids' ministry to the next level and make sure that we're also uh, adhering to things like childcare safety standards of having enough adults in the classroom with children. Um, so we need to make sure that we're doing that well. And, um, but praise God, hey, we have all these kids. Um, so if you want to get involved, if you're curious, if you like kids, maybe you don't even know, um, just contact us. Let us know. We'd love to talk with you about that. Uh, also, our grade four to sixes, you guys are in the service today. That is intentional. We want you guys to be here on these baptism partnership weeks so that you can kind of observe some things like communion and baptisms. We think it's important for you. So that's why you're here. Let's pray before we get into uh, our word, time in the Word. Father, thank you for uh, our church. God, thank you for what you're doing. We see your work, Lord. We see your work in the lives of our, our young, our old, God, every age. And um, God, thank you for these rich testimonies this morning. God, I pray that as we get into your Word now, would you challenge and shape us? Would you speak into our hearts? And we pray this in your name. Amen. John chapter 5, if you turn there, John chapter 5, um, I have the privilege this morning of getting, we're going to get back into our series on the Gospel of John. The last time we were in the Gospel of John was last March, so it's been almost a year that we have looked at this book. Uh, back uh, in the early part of last year, we studied up to chapter 4, so hence we're in chapter 5 uh, this morning, and um, you know, as I was reflecting on this passage, um, it just was really evident um, 
that this passage is about the work of God. And I can really see that this morning as we hear these baptisms, as we hear these testimonies. We see God at work in real time today. Um, but I think in our passage this morning, we're going to see that we're going we're to take a look at what the work of God is, what kind of work he came to do, but also how we can miss it, how we can actually uh, waste that work that he has come to do. And there's a couple of things we're going to look at there and how we can kind of miss that um, this morning as we look at John chapter 5. Uh, before we get into the passage... Uh, let's just, just bring you up to speed in the Gospel of John. Um, John is uh, the Apostle John. So he was a guy who actually traveled around with Jesus for three years doing ministry with him. He was part of his inner circle, so he was very close with Jesus. He was a friend. He was a close disciple. And John saw him do all these incredible things, and then he wrote about it many years later. And uh, John structured his gospel uh, a little differently than some of the other writers like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He uh, structured it around these seven miracles that Jesus did. So in uh, chapter uh, 2, we saw his first miracle that John wants us to see. It's uh, where Jesus turns water into wine, which is pretty cool. Uh, And then the second miracle is just in chapter 4, just before this passage, where he heals a man's uh, son. And today we're going to look at miracle number three. We're going to look at miracle number three. The other thing John's doing up to this point is he's, he's got this theme of water going on. So in chapter two, there's this water turning into wine. Chapter three, he's, uh, there's a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. He's talking about the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Chapter four, he meets a woman at a well, and he says he's the living water. And in chapter 5, we're going to see him do his thing by a pool of this kind of magical healing water, so it seems. So let's get into our passage. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the sheep gate. Sorry, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, while I'm going, another steps down in front of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Miracle number three. Uh, the Pool of Bethesda is located on the north side of the Temple Mount. It was actually buried for many, many years. Uh, and people actually thought John was kind of crazy when he was talking about this pool because archaeologists couldn't find it for the longest time. And then they uncovered it some years ago. And it's exactly as John described it. It has these five roof colonnades. There's actually two pools. And um, 
but there's these five colonnades. And that is what it was used for. It was used as a place of healing. Bethesda means house of mercy. So this place was a house of mercy. And gathered there are all these people who have, who have disabilities, what we call disabilities today. They, there, there are things that they're unable to do. There are limitations. And um, in that culture, when somebody had a disability, they were usually looked at as, oh, well, somebody sinned to make them that way. Which certainly is not always the case, if probably not most of the time is not the case. In John chapter 9, there's a man born blind, and Jesus challenges his disciples about that viewpoint. He says, no, it's not because of sin. But because of this understanding, people with disabilities, they were outcasts in this culture. There weren't people you'd want to go hang around. Um, They were looked at as unclean. And so Jesus shows up in Jerusalem for no other reason than to go to this pool. He's in Galilee. And he goes out of his way, completely out of his way, to go to this pool. And John wants us to see that. He heads there and he has one purpose in mind, this man. He has this man in mind. Now notice he doesn't heal everyone He comes for one guy, a man who has been there for 38 years, lame, can't walk. It's the average lifespan of a man in that time. So his whole life, he's been like this. And I find it so encouraging that Jesus knows this man. He knows his struggle. He knows him personally. And he comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? It's a great question. I mean, sometimes we just don't ask, right? Judging by the man's answer, though, we we see a couple things going on. First, this man's suffering is apparent because he tells Jesus that nobody helps him. He tries to get into the pool, but people step in front of him. Nobody cares about him. He's kind of cast aside. And what he's referring to there is there was this kind of mythical idea about this pool that this angel of the Lord would come and stir up the waters and then the first person in would get healed. It's this kind of mythical belief. It's not really biblical, but this is what these people have come to realize. Apparently there were some healings that happened here and so this is this belief. And so he wants to get in there, but people are always stepping in front of him. Nobody notices him. Nobody helps him. He's just shoved aside. Secondly, we see that this man isn't really aware of who's speaking to him. His answer reflects that his hope for healing rests in getting into the magic pool. He believes that if he can just get in there first, he has a chance. But then Jesus shows up and shows him that there isn't anything magical about this pool. You're looking in the wrong spot. Do you want to be healed? Christ has the power. And he heals him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering about this whole baptism thing. You're like, what what are these people doing? Dunking each other in water? This is kind of weird. Um, Is there something magical about this water? Is there something like, is it holy water? And the answer is, no. It's it's just water. (laughs) Um, There's nothing magical about the water. Um, It's just water. But there is something mysterious and wonderful that has happened in people's hearts through Jesus. And the water is just a symbol. 
It's an outward expression of what has happened inside that we can't see, but that Jesus has done. See, Jesus has come to do a transforming work in the world. He's come to heal. He has come to restore. And that might mean physically, and sometimes he does that physically. But in his first coming, we only see foretastes of the physical. That's going to come in the end when he comes a second time. But he has definitely come to do it spiritually. He's come to heal us and to restore us. That is his work. In our text this morning... We see this. Jesus displays himself as a unique son of God. He is the one that makes the difference, not magic pools. And he came to bring healing and to restore people's lives. So that's his work. That's his work. This is the work he came to do. This is the work he is still doing 2,000 years later. Isn't it amazing that we're here in Chilliwack seeing God at work? But we can, uh, we can miss it. We can miss out on this work. And I want you to look at verse 13 for the first kind of way that we can veer off course and we can miss or waste the work uh, that God is doing. Verse 13, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well love it. It starts off with this encouraging note. See, you are well. And then it gets serious. <laughs> Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. You can see here that Jesus did not want this man to waste the miracle that had just happened by walking away and continuing in a life of sin. He's concerned about his physical suffering. Absolutely. But he is especially concerned about his eternal suffering. Sin no more. That doesn't mean he's expecting perfection, but it means that the miracle has taken place for this man's holiness, for him to grow in holiness. That is what the miracle is for. So he doesn't want him to waste it. So Jesus' work is to bring healing for the purpose of holiness. That's why he's come. He wants to make us new. He doesn't just want us to go back to the old life. So the ditch here, the way that we can miss it, it's something called, um, we, we can miss out on Jesus' work it can be wasted through libertinism. Okay, that's quite a word. Libertinism. Another word uh, theologians use is antinomianism. That's an even harder word. Antinomianism. A-N-T-M-O-U-S-E. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> this is like... Uh, <clears throat> never mind. <laughs> <laughs> So he's trying to guard this guy from falling into this ditch of libertinism. What is libertinism? It's the idea that when you come to faith in Jesus, you are now just kind of, he saved you, so now you're free to just kind of live however you want. And you don't have to obey God's law. It's there as, you know, nice advice. But you don't have to actually 
live and grow in holiness. So it, it treats salvation like it's a ticket. Okay, got my ticket to heaven. I'm saved. And now I just put it in my back pocket. I got my fire insurance. And uh, I'm good. I can just live how I want to live now. That's libertinism. That is not biblical faith. That is one of the ditches that Jesus is trying to guard this man from. Don't waste this. Don't waste this miracle. Don't fall into that. Go and live a life of holiness. Not in his own strength. But nonetheless, that is the call that Jesus gives. The Apostle Paul faced this, um, and he wrote to the church in Rome in the letter to the Romans. They were starting to wonder about this idea because they were like, wow, God's grace is so amazing. I'm saved by faith through his grace alone. I don't have to earn it. But then they were going this other way and saying, I don't have to, I don't have to live life under law anymore, and you know, I'm free. But here's what Paul says. He says, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the point. Newness of life. That's what he's come to bring. See, libertinism is really just slavery still to sin. It's slavery to sin. It it looks like it's freedom, but it's not. Christ has come to do a healing, restoring work in the lives of us for our growth in holiness. He wants us to walk in newness of life, not in slavery to sin. Uh, I had a friend of mine years ago. um, I was uh, studying to be an actor in my early college days, and we were working on a play called um, Alice Through the Looking Glass. And my my friend, who's an older gentleman, uh, we came pretty close during it, and he was kind of short and stocky, so of course he played Humpty Dumpty. Um, and uh, he, you know, he would, you know, he was older, so his memory didn't work as well. So he would like study his lines, he would record all of his lines, and then he'd play himself talking in his car while we were driving to rehearsals. It was always a little bit weird. Don's voice over the, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. So. We're driving out one time, and I'll never forget, we got into the conversation of God, and, and, and he turned to me, and he said, God saved my life twice. I was like, wow. And he told me this story of how he basically almost died in this boating accident. He was like stranded out in the water, and, and the waves were you know, pretty tumultuous, and he was saved by the search and rescue team. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. But it didn't really stick for, for my friend. The next year, he left his wife of 30 years to go off and live his life. You know, Ran into him a few years later. He left her, shacked up with some other girl. Now he had a little baby again. He's like 60 years old. You know, he's just starting over, and it's just kind of, what are you doing? Has <laughs> your life changed? Like... God saved you. Don't waste that miracle. He saved you so that you would come to him and know him. What's the other direction we could go off course, though? I want you guys to look at verse 9. There's another direction we could go. 
that would be missing it. Verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath, the day that Jesus did this miracle. It was the Sabbath day. So the Jews said to the man, so these Jews come in. They're not even Pharisees. They're just other Jews. They said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. These Jews come along, and this miracle happens. 38 years, this guy's been lame, and he's healed. And they come in, and instead of celebrating it, he just worked. He just took up his mat and he went into another room. That, that, that's wrong according to our law. See, it wasn't wrong according to Scripture. It was this other law that they had created called the Mishnah where they had all these rules about what work, what was considered work. And one of their rules was you can't bring a mat from one domain into another. So they see this and all they see is this. This, this little box they've created for God and how he works and that's all they see and it didn't fit into that and they said this is wrong and they miss what God is doing they completely miss it they miss it in the worst way you could possibly miss it it's terrible <laughs> this should shock us how could they how could they think like this how could they possibly that's the thing that they came away with broke the Sabbath. And they think this is a big deal. In the rest of chapter 5, we're going to see this confrontation unfold. This is a big deal to them. This is a Bible issue for them. It's not really. They just think that it is. This is what we call the ditch of legalism. Okay, So Jesus' work can be missed through legalism. Legalism is sometimes thought to be the opposite of libertinism. It's actually not. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson helpfully calls them non-identical twins <laughs> that emerge from the same womb. So they're actually, libertinism and legalism are actually opposites to grace. They're actually both opposites to grace. So in legalism, it's the idea that we earn God's favor through our obedience and not by faith alone. So in order to get saved, we have to obey the laws. That's not biblical faith either. That flows out of being saved. But the legalistic heart goes even further than that. It begins to set up other laws that God has actually not given. We begin to imagine that God is stricter than he really is. This is what Eve does in the garden. When she's asked by the snake about the fruit, she says, oh, we're not even allowed to touch the fruit. But God never said that. He said, don't eat the fruit. She adds this law. We already begin to see right from the beginning that we have this thing in our hearts that wants to imagine that God isn't good and 
that we have to obey and it's, he's kind of the slave driver and we, we set up more laws for ourselves. This is what these guys are doing. And they miss, they miss out on what he's really doing. They begin to split hairs. They begin to focus. You know, it's like when you have a little penny in your hand and you put it up, you put it up to your face and you're looking at it and studying the detail and pretty soon everything else in your vision has gone because you're looking at this one little thing. That's kind of what legalism does. Everything else just disappears because you're looking at this little thing and you're like, wow, this is really important. And you've forgotten. Oh, actually, it's kind of small. You begin to make a mountain out of a mole hill. Be careful of legalism. Be careful of legalism. Be careful you don't get fixated on one particular issue in the church that you miss out on the work that God is doing. Guard your heart against fixating on one particular thing that you might think is biblical but probably isn't. You know what I mean? Probably isn't. Like, uh, they don't sing my favorite hymn. Or, oh man, I really love the King James Version. I, I, I can't believe they don't read the King James or man, like, why doesn't he wear a tie when he preaches? <laughs> I'll tell you why. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> These are two ditches that we can go off. Libertinism, legalism. They're ways that we go astray as a church. And so we want to celebrate God's work and we don't want to miss it. Um, how do we avoid going off course? We do it by celebrating Jesus, who he is what he has done, what he is doing. We do it by remembering the gospel. We've got to keep our eyes on the gospel, gazing at the beauty of his work on the cross. God's at work, my friends. <laughs> Let's not miss it, eh? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you, God, for what you have done this morning in the lives of these people who are baptized. God, it, it's just, it brings a warm smile to our hearts, God. We, um, we just stand in awe, God, that, that all these years later, you are still at work. And you are working until now, God. And um, we want to be part of that work, God. We thank you um, that you have come to save us, that we don't have to save ourselves through obedience to the law. But God, I also pray that you would guard us from thinking that we don't need to live a new life. God, you've saved us for a new life with you. I pray that you would fill us now and help us to live out that life. God, if there's repentance that we need to have, I pray we would do that this morning. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. May you love us so much you came for us. God, I pray for people here who need healing today, physical healing or even spiritual healing, God, in their souls. God, we pray that you would touch them. We pray you do a work of grace. I thank you, God. You are so good. I pray this in your name. Amen.